just a couple of housekeeping announcements before we get started. Um, if you didn't get a chance to sign in last week, if you weren't here or forgot, you can just come up afterward and sign in. That would be good. And uh, let me know if you're not on the email list. We'll get you on that email list. And you can go directly to the website, the Buddhist Studies website, at any time where you'll see the emails that have been sent out for the class. All the readings will be there, as well as any of the talks or guided meditations that have been recorded. And thanks to Scott for setting that up. And Mesky's volunteer to help with the uh, getting the audio talks up. So I think week one, Scott has already put up, and we'll meet afterward tonight and get weeks uh, this week's talk and uh, guided meditation up on the website. Um, and thanks to Nora, who will be giving the Donna talk uh, later in the course, and to Jenny and Bob, who are doing the program hosting. And if you want to help out, you can just talk to Jenny afterward, and she'll organize, make sure there's at least one person organizing the setup and the takedown um, after each class of this course series. Any other business about the course? So we'll save about 25 minutes tonight for the small groups, and I'll say a little bit more about that when we get closer. The hindrances are used both to talk about what gets in the way of the mind coming into samadhi, the settling of the mind or the stability of the mind, the calming of the mind, what hinders that natural movement toward stillness, peacefulness, and calm of the mind. But the hindrances are also described as what's hindering clarity or seeing things as they are, or insight. Here's one of the traditional um, passages you find in the Buddhist teachings where he's talking about the hindrances in light of coming into samadhi, that unification of mind. One has cast away sensuous desire. One dwells with a heart free from sensuous desire. From desire, one cleanses one's heart. One has cast away ill will. One dwells with a heart free from ill will, cherishing love and compassion toward all living beings. One cleanses one's heart from ill will. One has cast away sloth and torpor. One dwells free from sloth and torpor, loving the light with watchful mind, with clear consciousness. One cleanses one's mind from sloth and torpor. One has cast away restlessness and worry, dwelling with a mind undisturbed, with heart full of peace. One cleanses one's mind from restlessness and worry. One has cast away skeptical doubt, Dwelling free from doubt, full of confidence in the good, one cleanses one's heart from doubt. One has put aside these five hindrances and come to know these paralyzing defilements of the mind. And far from sensual impressions, far from unwholesome things, one enters into the first absorption. So the definition of uh, either jhana, the state of absorption, or even what's called sort of the preliminary concentration 
the definition is when the hindrances aren't in the mind. When the mind isn't being hindered by sensual craving or ill will or doubt or sleepiness or restlessness, that's the technical definition of samadhi, the sort of initial state of calm, clear presence, leading onward to more full, absorbed uh, states of, conscious, uh, of concentration. thought it might be good, and someone sent an email, maybe it was George, I forget. Did you send an email about the difference between defilements and craving and... Yeah, so it might be nice to look at the terms. They're, they very much overlap. So I'll just go through some of the main terms that relate to the unwholesome states of mind. So one major word to know is tanha, usually translated as craving. More specifically, it's, it means thirsting. So craving is considered the cause, I guess, the most obvious cause for the experience of suffering, the, for existence and the continual moving on into cycles of suffering over and over again, experiencing stress. We were stressed last week, now we're stressed this week. And if we're stressed next week, that's that ongoing nature of craving leading to stress. So it's more than just greed, it's craving sensual experiences, sensual pleasures. It's also craving uh, becoming, wanting to become somebody. And when we're exhausted by life and its frustrations, we crave extinction, wanting things to be done with, wanting to be over with things. So these are the three manifestations of craving. Now a more intensified craving we call clinging, and the word, the Pali word is upadana, and this is translated either as clinging or sometimes grasping. And these two follow in, in dependent origination. We go from a feeling of like pleasantness to craving to grasping to becoming. So grasping or clinging is an intensified version of craving. And one way you can think about it is when we crave something or want something and then we start to do something about it, then we're grasping. It's like taking a hold, doing something to get, acting on it. And the traditionally in the discourses, there are four expressions of grasping. Grasping sensual pleasures, grasping views, grasping rules and rituals or routines, the way we like to do things, and grasping the sense of self, the belief in self. Then there's a couple of other lists. So the hindrances we talked about last week and this whole course is around the hindrances, so I'll just mention them again. Sense desire or sens- uh, desire for sense pleasures, ill will, sloth and torpor or sleepiness, restlessness, and skeptical doubt. Sometimes restlessness, it's restlessness and worry. And so then there's two other major lists of unwholesome states. One is asawas, sometimes called the cankers or taints. And this word, asawa, 
is often equated when the Buddha is talking about someone who's fully awakened. He'll say somebody who's free from the taints or free from the cankers. And these are, and you see they're very much overlapping. Sense desire, desiring external, uh, eternal existence, wrong views, and ignorance. So wanting to keep becoming, not wanting things to end. So sense desires, desiring, desiring external, I'm sorry, eternal existence, wrong views, and ignorance. And then a, a larger list of the unwholesome qualities of mind, the defilements is usually what it's called in English, and the Pali word is kilesa. And it begins with greed, hatred, and delusion. So you see very similar to the beginning of the hindrances. And in a way, delusion is uh, related to being restless. You know, when we're restless or sleepy or doubtful, we're disconnected. Sleepiness causes the mind to be disconnected from the way it is. We're misperceiving because we're disconnected. Restlessness and sleepiness and also doubt causes the mind to disconnect. So we have greed, hate, delusion, then conceit, speculative views, skeptical doubt, mental torpor or sleepiness, restlessness, shamelessness, and lack of moral fear. So these are the ten defilements. You see the five hindrances are embedded in the defilements. So the cankers or taints, the defilements and the hindrances relate to each other quite a bit, as does craving. Any questions about that? And you know, there's that uh, wonderful Buddhist dictionary that you can download online, get your own copy. You can order a copy, I think, from Amazon, um, because they now publish it, uh, a regular publishing house publishes it, but it's also free as a PDF online. And it's just called the Buddhist Dictionary, and it's by Yana Tolika, um, a well-known Western Buddhist monk who um, was a scholar, Pali scholar in Sri Lanka where he uh, lived as a monk for many decades. If you have trouble finding that, just let me know and I'll, or you can come up and copy down the name after the class tonight. I meant to share last week, Ajahn Tani Saro uh, and this is also from the teachings, the Buddhist teachings, where he's, he uses the simile of feeding and starving quite often. And as you spend this time, you know, these seven weeks, looking at the mind and noticing what it is that's hindering calm and hindering clarity of your mind, and just to be curious about that and to keep showing up and looking. Well, what, what is it now? What actually is arising in the mind that's hindering the experience of peace or hindering the the clarity of the mind, the potential to see things as they are. And you might remember, if you were here last week, I read that discourse where the Buddha's talking about feeding the fire, you know, throwing dung and twigs and branches and getting the fire going. And so there's this idea of feeding or sustenance. 
and one of the metaphors I mentioned that's used quite a bit is burning fire. When fire is burning, it's burning, it's being sustained by fuel sticks. And the hindrances are also being sustained. What are hindrances being sustained by? And what are they sustaining? There's some process of the hindrances sustaining. Something is being set in motion, being fed. And what is this that's being fed? And this is good to reflect on because it will help us uh, know when the mind is being hindered. I mean, one of our major problems is we go through life with calm and clarity being hindered, but we don't realize it. You know, we did a survey of everybody in this world. You know, a lot of people would say, I'm calm and I'm clear. So just because we, it, it feels like we're, the mind is clear and calm doesn't mean it actually is. I mean, that's, you know, part of being dull, you know, the hindrance of being sleepy, mental torpor, is not knowing how it is. Not knowing whether the mind has greed or the mind is caught in aversion or the mind is deluded. So he's talking about this selfing, you know, let's make it a verb, how the mind, there's an activity of mind when it's hindered, when clarity and calm is hindered, the mind is in this churning, in this burning modality or process. It's burning, and the Buddha uses this image, burning with the fires of craving. Craving sense pleasures, craving becoming, wanting to be, wanting to become, wanting to exist, and craving at times wanting things to be over with and be done with and be done with this day and to be done with this life and to be done with this relationship and to be done with winter, right? So these things we crave. And, it, and if we look, we can start to recognize very quickly when the mind is churning, burning in this process of suffering, of becoming, of wanting, of craving, of one way or another. And it's in this process where all of the unwholesome qualities manifest. They're just like supporting actors. The main event is this you know, cycling of samsara, as we say in Buddhism, the cycles of stress and suffering how stress and suffering lead ever onward to more stress and suffering. And even when things are going well, so it's not even, we don't even get an escape when we're having moments of real pleasure. Because although the, the sense of this being pleasurable may dominate the mind and dominate our experience of the, of the moment, but underneath, we may not be conscious of it, but underneath, we don't want it to end. And that's how the churning is manifesting then. We're holding, we're wanting it to continue, we want it to be better, even better. We're having our vacation and we're thinking about how it could be even better. If there were just a few less rocks and uh, seashells on the beach, it would be so much nicer because I could walk without having to wear my sandals. Or, you know, if the surf wasn't so rough, or if there was just a little bit more surf, it would be even really pleasant states. There's a churning, a burning around becoming, like wanting 
to be the person who's even in a nicer place. You know, or wanting to eat delicious food without getting full. It's like the mind, this part of the mind that's becoming, that's burning with craving, it, uh, it doesn't really need much fuel. It's very, it finds fuel very easily, something to burn about, something to churn about. A lot of the times, you know, we're just so busy by life, doing our life, that we don't realize this ongoing burning. And, and we don't have the stability of mind and the integrity and the interest to really see, to start deconstructing it in terms of, for example, the five hindrances, and really distinguish, is the fuel for this fire uh, sense desire? like the mind wanting something? Or is it ill will, aversion, fear that's causing the burning or sort of describing the burning? Is it dullness? Is it restlessness? Is it doubting? What is it? And how is the way the mind understands, the way the mind is in the moment or relates in the moment, how is that view, that way of relating part adding fuel to this fire, continuing on this fire. One of the great things about going on retreat is that, uh, or anytime you simplify your life or you restrict your life in some way, is that we start to see the mind's, uh, uh, this burning part of the mind. Like if we give free rein to the mind, we don't notice it. But when we tie it down for a moment, like we sit for 30 minutes in the morning, you know, that's 30 minutes we're not listening to the news and something could be happening. Or it's 30 minutes that we can't eat our breakfast. Or 30 minutes where we can't stretch out our limb. And all of a sudden, things we take for granted, like that I can... I have a nose hair now, I just noticed during the sit, that's gotten a little long and it just keeps tickling me. Can't wait till I get home and get my scissor, my little scissor out. And, and something like that, you, like if we're sitting still, like I was earlier, you know, you really see that craving and that aversion. And it's just very insightful to see what a force that is. That uh, being able to just uh, do whatever we want in a way masks how much agitation there is. So you see why in the monastic forms and uh, some of the rituals and practice there really is a lot about restraint. But it's not that restraint is inherently good. It's just very educational. If we restrain ourselves by sitting still or by cutting back and not eating food after 12 o'clock noon or, you know, only have sexual relations with one person, then we notice all kinds of things that we're not going to notice otherwise.
So uh, this week, well, uh, this week and next week, we'll focus a little bit more specifically on sense desires, sensual craving, one of the three kinds of craving. And um, hopefully you had a chance to take a look at the uh, chart from Andy Olensky, the journal, Insight Journal, that Andy Olensky edits. And he has uh, sort of a nice chart. Looks like this on the five hindrances. I just gave you the link to the whole journal. So then you have to just scroll through the journal until you get to the page 16 and 17 where this, these two pages on the five hindrances. I just want to go through He's just organized the different discourses the Buddha, uh, different ways the Buddha spoke about the hindrances. I want to read a few of these before we break into small groups. There are these five obstacles, hindrances, which overspread the heart, which weaken insight, that a person without being rid of these five obstacles, hindrances, which overspread the heart, which weaken insight, without strength and weaken insight, shall know his own good, shall know another's good, shall know the good of both, or shall realize the excellence of knowledge and insight proper to the noble ones, the awakened ones, which goes beyond the human condition. That cannot be. So it's a little bit of a convoluted sentence, but basically the Buddha is saying that you're going to develop real insight in your life without addressing the hindrances, what hinders calm, what hinders insight, without getting to be a good student of greed, aversion, dullness, restlessness, and doubt, that can't be. And there's a couple related uh, discourses where basically the Buddha is saying the same thing where he sort of talks about how wonderful it is and that you think you can do this without addressing the hindrances, that can't be. Some of you have gotten a copy of um, Sayada Utejaniya, this well-known Burmese monk and meditation teacher's little booklet called Don't Look Down on the Hindrances. What is it? Oh, oh, Don't Look Down on the Defilements. And then what's the second part? They will laugh at you. They will laugh at you. <laughs> and it's true. And uh, the description in the text is, is actually it gives me a little bit of the eebie-jeebies. Um, the text isn't so bad, but then I, I read a little bit more about these particular trees. So the Buddha uses this, this simile of the trees to talk about the hindrances. Practitioners, there are huge trees with tiny seeds and huge bodies and circular of other trees. And the trees which they encircle become bent, twisted, and split. And I'm skipping down a bit. So too, practitioners, when some, some clansmen here has left behind sensual pleasures and gone forth from the household life into homelessness, like taking up monastic vows. One becomes bent, twisted, and split because of those same sensual pleasures or because of others worse than them. Right? So the Buddha said, even though you might on the outside become a monk or a nun, if you still have sensual desire or the others, you're still in trouble. He said, practitioners, <clears throat> these five are obstructions, hindrances, and circular of the mind, and circulars of the mind, weakeners of wisdom. What five? Sensual desire is an obstruction, a hindrance, 
encircling the mind, a weakener of wisdom. Ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, doubt is an obstruction, a weakener of wisdom. These are the five obstructions, hindrances, encirclers of the mind, weakeners of wisdom. And then uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi in the collection of the Buddha's discourses that I just read from has a footnote where he talks about these particular fig trees where they have fruits, you know, that animals eat and then they're pooping some of the big branches and these plants can start growing high up in big trees. And they don't actually penetrate into the through the bark into the sap of that particular tree. They just live off of the moisture and the environment and whatever's on the bark of the tree until they drop roots down or their roots go down the trunk of the tree and dig in. They drop more roots down and eventually they create this basket of roots around the tree and uh, take over the entire canopy slowly encircling the tree and they become these huge trees. You might not even recognize that it started out as a, you know, a plant living in the tree. And this is, uh, this is the idea. The Buddha uses this image quite a bit. And we can think about this in terms of like when we're just a little greedy or just a little irritated or aversive or a little dull or a little restless or a little plagued or caught in doubt, that we can, you know, just distract ourselves, like not wanting to own the responsibility to take a close look and to develop skill, like how to be skillful. What is the skillful way of understanding what's coloring the mind right now? What helps? What hurts? I'll share a few more things at the, again, from the uh, Insight Journal. There are these five debasements of gold by reason of which debased gold is neither pliable nor workable nor bright but is brittle and of no use for the best work. In just the same way, and so, and then the, the Buddha goes on and mentions, you know, the gold could be defiled by iron or copper or tin or lead or silver. In just the same way, there are these five debasements of the mind by reason of which a debased mind is neither pliable nor workable nor bright, but is brittle and not rightly composed for the destruction of the taints. And then another discourse. If, and then you can just add in any of the five hindrances, if central desire is present in oneself, a practitioner knows that it is present. If it's absent in oneself, a practitioner knows that it's absent. And one knows how unarisen sensual desire comes to arise, and one knows how to the abandonment of the arisen sensual desire comes about, and one knows about the non-arising of the abandoned sensual desire in the future will come about. It's like a description of what we're trying to understand. Like we want to understand when the mind is colored by craving, we want to understand the mind's colored by craving. And when the mind isn't, when there is a craving in the mind, we should be able to know that as a direct experience. Oh, there's no craving right now. Like when I was sitting the second sit between 7.30 and 8, 
I kept looking, you know, for the hindrances. And even though I saw it, like a lot of times I would see, no, I don't see, I'm not aware of any of the hindrances. But we don't stop there. Just because we don't see them, I mean, that means we don't see them. Whatever clarity I have, whatever skill the mind had, it doesn't see them. But we keep looking. We don't just assume. Because even if it's true that there aren't any, isn't any craving or aversion or dullness or restlessness or doubt, there might be in the next moment. Or there might be the, it might be there, but the mind just isn't sensitive enough to pick it up. So this is our working ground. It's like noble work to be interested in the mind in this way. And the, the way to uh, support that is to really have the sense of ease, the natural ease of the mind, whether you're working with the breath or any way that you can cultivate this confidence in the natural ease of both the body and mind, because that, that creates the context to notice what's agitating, hindering calm and ease and insight. You know, if we're just doing our day and our mind is here and then it's there and it's complaining to itself and it's wondering about this and it's remembering that from the past, sort of doing what minds normally do, it's not going to be easy to notice the presence. Uh, I mean, we'll notice maybe strong states of greed, strong states of aversion, but we're not going to notice subtle dullness and subtle doubt and subtle craving and subtle aversion. It's just not going to be there. I mean, it will be there, but we won't, we won't be aware of it. couple more quotes here. Equipped with this noble morality, with this noble restraint of the senses, with this noble contentment, one finds a solitary lodging at the root of a forest tree in a mountain cave or gorge or charnel ground, a jungle thicket or in the open air on a heap of straw. Right. So this is our practice place. Then, having eaten after one's return from alms round, one sits down cross-legged, holding one's body erect, and establishes mindfulness before oneself. Abandoning the hindrances, one abides with the mind free from these five hindrances. One purifies one mind of the hindrances. And then another time the Buddha says, when one dwells with the mind obsessed and oppressed by the hindrances, one does not understand, as it really is, the escape from the hindrances. On that occasion, one neither knows nor sees, as it really is, one's own good, the good of others, or the good of both. In other words, we can't be helpful to ourselves or others when we're under the influence of the hindrances. And this, this is something that comes up quite a bit in talks here and probably other places where people start to hear some of the teachings of the Buddha, and then they, they feel like, but the world needs my help. The world is so screwed up. I need to get involved, and this feels more like a retreat from the world. And there's a confusion, but it really comes from this understanding that as long as our mind is under the influence of greed, aversion, doubt, dullness, restlessness, we can't be sure what we're doing in the world is of value. 
I mean, I'm not saying that we should, you know, neglect our children or our partners until we're fully enlightened. But the priority, as we're taking care of our family and as we're taking care of our communities, the priority is to use, like, given that we have a close friendship or an intimate relationship or kids or responsibilities or desire to address social injustice, given that that's what our life is about, let's use those experiences to understand the mind. Because then we can really do that work so much better if we understand how greed is affecting the mind. And just the last few things here, and you can take a closer look, but the Buddha had two famous discourses where he gave... uh, Metaphors for the five hindrances. One is he talked about a pool of water. You can think about a clear forest pool and the different ways the clarity of the water would be obstructed. And then each particular way the water would get colored, he likened to one of the hindrances. So if you put dye in the water, you liken that to sense desire. If you, for ill will, it was boiling water, right? So if you're boiling the pond, you know, you're not going to have clarity. You're not going to see yourself or see what's happening. And sloth and torpor is a pond covered with algae. Restlessness is a pond stirred up by the wind. And then doubt is a muddy pond. And then the other one, he likened sense desire to being in debt. And when the mind is able to go beyond sense-desire, it's the experience, it feels like being free from debt, having been indebted and now no longer indebted. And uh, ill will is like being sick. When the mind is covered by ill will, under the influence of ill will, it it feels like we're sick. And then when we're able to go beyond or abandon the ill will, it's like the experience of returning to health. And sloth and torpor, and most of you know this experience, is like being in prison. When, we're, when the mind is really dull, it feels like the mind is imprisoned in that goo, in that heaviness. And it's like the door being opened when energy comes back. We feel alive and free. Restlessness and remorse is like being enslaved. You know, when the mind is worrying, obsessing, restless in that way, it is. It like can't break free. This is so important. Running with that idea, and then finally, doubt is like being in danger, like being in a dangerous neighborhood or being lost in dangerous woods. And then, freeing the mind of doubt is like coming back to safety. So you can use these metaphors just to help get a sense of. Just a more immediate sense of how the mind is colored, what is influencing the mind. So, what I thought for the small groups tonight is um, hopefully you've had a chance already to just get a sense of what of the hindrances tend to dominate your mind, both when you're sitting, but also just as you're going about your day. Or you tend to be more of someone getting caught and the next sense or the next next sense pleasure like wanting this 
dangling little carrots in front of yourself like, oh, when I get done with this, I can do this. You know, I get to watch, you know, listen to the news or I get to have a treat or I can see my friend. So we're always under the influence of desire and sense experience. Or you test someone who tends to use aversion, fear, like if I don't do this, this person's not going to love me or I'll get fired or to motivate, to get us moving through life. And then do you see the same arising in when you're sitting? Like, are you judging your practice, criticizing your practice, in some way ill will affecting your meditation practice? Or greed, like really wanting, really working to get that calm, desiring the calm, desiring the stillness? Or dullness or sleepiness? Are you walking through your life in a fog? Is your sitting practice often a fog? of dullness or too much energy hard to stay still always wanting to do things in life wanting to call multitask plagued by doubt both in your sit in life second guessing yourself overthinking things so one of the things in this small group you might want to share is just like uh, a little bit of an inventory of what are the expressions of the hindrances in your daily life and in your sitting practice. And they may be the same, and then you can talk about how they're same. Or you might notice uh, a predominance of one hindrance in sitting, but it's different in daily life, and maybe different in different parts of your daily life. Like when I'm with at home with the people I live with, these are the hindrances that seem to affect the mind. When I'm at work, it's these. The other thing that I thought would be useful to share in the small group Um, specifically around craving but you could use any of the hindrances that seem important in your practice coming up in your life how is it that the mind is feeding these hindrances or this hindrance what does the mind do to keep the hindrance present to keep it strong to keep it a dominant force in the mind how is it because one of the things we see is that, and this is so powerful to see with craving, you know, next time you have a strong craving for something, if you just sit with it, it will eventually go away without gratification, without you getting what you want. And that is such a powerful discovery, and it's true with any state of mind, any of the hindrances, of course. So if, it's, if the greediness has some staying power, then it means that the mind is doing something to keep it in motion because on its own it will cease. So what does the mind do to maintain the fear or maintain the irritation or the aversion? What does the mind do to maintain the greed, the dullness, the restlessness and the doubt? So this is something you could share in a small group. Maybe, and this is, you know, we're just beginning this reflecting, so it may take a while before you have a real clear sense. But just to be interested How do you feed the hindrances? And how do you starve the hindrances? What way of relating to the hindrances weaken them? What way of relating to the hindrances strengthen them? Because one of the things, and you can share this in your small group, we often meet hindrances with another hindrance. I hate always wanting. You know, I mean, that's just an exaggeration, but we do that all the time. 
or judging ourselves or doubting our practice because we see irritation and aversion. So then we want to, we just spin, thinking about what am I doing wrong? What did the Buddha say? Now some of that can be useful, that when we're spinning in an unproductive way, it's unproductive. It's a hindrance. So for those of you who are brand new to the uh, Buddhist Studies group, every other week we break into small groups of three, and uh, when it's your turn to speak, it's just your time, you have two, two to three minutes just to speak from your heart about what you've come to understand in your practice. And you might have a lot to say, or you might run out of things to say very quickly, and that's okay. Then just sit together in the silence. Don't go on to the next person. Really take your two or three minutes, even if a lot of it is in silence. But during that silence, just keep reflecting on this theme. What do I know about hindrances? What have I seen in my own sitting practice, in my daily life practice? How have I experienced ill will? How have I experienced craving for sense pleasure? What do I know about it? How do I feed it? How do I starve it? So keep reflecting because you might in a few seconds have more to say and then just share that with the group. And it's just a, it's really an act of generosity to share directly from your own experience what you understand, what you don't understand, and then our job as a listener is just to receive that person, to stay very present with your own body because it will help you be present with the other person. So it's not like you have to lean in in order to hear the person. It's more about being relaxed and composed and present with your body. And you don't need to give any feedback, like not even nonverbal cues to the person. So that way that we often take care of each other in conversation, we're just practicing being in a more neutral place with the person and offering a more subtle but more beautiful presence like we're just there relaxed and sensitive and receiving what the person has to say not getting lost and taking care of the person later after each person has shared there will be four or five minutes for just more informal conversing and then you can ask clarifying questions if you want or you could compare something you heard the other person saying with your own experience, things like that. But not so much, uh, not at all, when um, we're doing that formal go-round at the beginning. And uh, so there's no cross-talk, and there's, we're also holding what people say uh, in privacy. So it's just for this group. It's not something that you would then, hey, you know, when I was at Buddhist Studies on Monday night, so-and-so said this. I mean, if you, if you feel like you'd like to share it with somebody, you can, of course, ask the person later, hey, I'd like to share what you said with my friend later. Is that okay? But otherwise, we just hold what is said in privacy here, in the small groups, that is. Any questions about the small groups? So I'm guessing we have about 60. So why don't we count off by 19? See if that's enough. One, two, three. Four, five, six. So, eight, nine, ten, ten, nine, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Let's stop at eighteen. One, one two, three, four, five, six, seven, 
Okay, uh, let's just, so um, the three of you, I don't know your name in the green shirt. What's your name? Caroline. Caroline and, and over, you're one group, so just, uh, you're 18. And then the three of you, Tom and the two in front, Stacy, and I'm forgetting your name. And then I'm Rich. Rich, okay, and Tom and Stacy, you're 19. And then, actually, why don't you join 19 and then you join uh, 18, that group over in the corner with Kim, okay? No. We have an 18 already. Oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah, so you guys are 19 and then you're 20. So, 20, you're just going to be in this corner. <laughs> so, you have a group of four, and then Kim and your group of 19, you're going to be right in that corner. And I'll just go backwards then. 18, you'll be in my office. 17 in Shelley's office, 16 in the community room, 16, 15, 14 in the community room, and let's say 13, 2 in the community room, 12 and 11 in the lobby, uh, 10 on the white couch, 9 on the table underneath the community room in the workshop, 9 in the workshop. Um, let's see, 8, 7, Six, five, four in the coat area down in the basement. <laughs> Three in the lobby uh, on the bench, and feel free to bring chairs there. Two right over there by Dave, and and one right over here by Evelyn. That make sense? Good luck. <laughs> I'll keep I'll keep time for everybody who can hear. The